Gracious God, I ask that you would teach us to be attentive right now. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we acknowledge that we live in a world, and particularly this Canadian context, uh, we're hardwired to lack focus. Uh, Lord, we've been engineered by all of our devices and our apps to have very short attention spans. And uh, we can give short attention spans to things that don't deserve much attention, like all the memes and the videos and the tweets that we read. But you deserve great attention. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us to listen and help us to think and guard our thoughts and our minds from all of the distractions and the the pulls of the world. Uh, Lord, there are many things that we can give our thoughts to right now, but we pray that you would help us to, as an act of worship, give our attention wholly and entirely to you. And uh, we can't do that in our own strength, so we ask for the help of your Spirit. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what we should hear, prepare our hearts to respond in the ways that we should respond. Lord, I, I pray that you would guard my tongue and help me to say what you would have me say and nothing more. And Lord, if I were to step beyond what I ought to say, I pray that you would guard the ears of, of those who are here. Lord, that they wouldn't hear anything that they should not hear. Lord, this is your day, and it's your word. This is your church. So God, do what only you can do, we ask. We ask for the help of your spirit this morning, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I hope you have your Bibles open now to First Timothy chapter 4. And uh, as we turn to a passage this morning that is directed more particularly to young Timothy in Ephesus, I do want to ask an important question before we go any further, which is this. Why should we lean in and listen close to instructions that are for Timothy? Maybe to put the question in a different way, is there anything in this passage for people like us? Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, well, this is well and good for Timothy. And perhaps you could apply this to, to pastors and elders today, but I don't see how this speaks into my life. And if that's the way that you think about this passage, that's going to impact the way that you listen to the text. You're going to find yourself tuning out and giving your attention to things that do actually apply to your life. So listen, I want to just tell you loud and clear this morning, this text is for you and you and you and you. It's for us. And no, you're not Timothy. And no, most of you are not pastors or elders. But we are all called to minister in our various spheres of life. All of us. We're a kingdom of priests, a royal nation. The lessons that we're going to find in this passage and in this entire letter will make you a better mentor, a better friend, a better mother, a better father a better evangelist. This is for you. So please lean in and listen close. I want to share with you a story from World War II. And I acknowledge off the top I'm not a history buff, so I do this with great trepidation, knowing that Lincoln Kohler is here and can fact-check me at a moment's notice. Lincoln, where are you? I'm going to not make eye contact with you because you know this stuff. But I think that this story is helpful for us as we lean in and listen today. It was the summer of 1940. And the Nazis were on the brink of dealing a devastating blow to the Allied forces. France had fallen, and 200,000 British soldiers had been pushed to the beaches of Dunkirk, along with 100,000 more French and Belgian troops. This beach, interestingly enough, was separated from Great Britain by a measly 20 miles. And yet the soldiers were stranded with no hope. When all seemed lost... 
Lord John Gort put a plan on the table. It was a ridiculous plan, really. He called upon the civilians of Great Britain to mobilize their personal boats, their fishing vessels, to take anything that would float and to bring it to the beach of Dunkirk. It was called Operation Dynamo. The Brits rose to the occasion. Brave men and women, civilians, departed on a 20-mile rescue mission while their boats were peppered with fire from the Nazi air assault overhead. And miraculously, the mission was a success. Most of the 300,000 Allied soldiers who had been stranded were brought home to safety. And you ask, well, what does this story have to do with us today? Here's the lesson. When people are stranded in a hopeless situation, when your friends and your neighbors and your family are trapped in a scenario that leads to certain death, then you are no longer a civilian. You're a soldier. And here's my fear. I think that we as Christians in North America have adopted a civilian mindset. Even though we see our loved ones trapped in sin, even though we see our neighbors ensnared by the evil one, we have been conditioned to believe that someone else is better equipped to help. The professionals will share the gospel, we say. What good can I possibly do, we say. I can't get them to come with me to the church building, we say. Well, my prayer is that each and every one of us will leave today with a clear understanding that there is a lot that we can do. A lot that we must do. My prayer is that we will commence with our own Operation Dynamo. One that will mobilize every Christian in this church to bring those men, women, boys, and girls across the great expanse and into the safety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there is a spiritual battle raging all around us. In our passage last week, the Apostle Paul gave us a sobering reminder that some will fall away. There's an enemy assaulting our community, our city, our nation. And our passage this morning presents us with a call to action. A call to live in the reality of of this spiritual battle that the Apostle Paul has just unveiled to us. And so here now... God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 6 to 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you were listening closely, you probably noticed a recurring theme in this passage. The theme of toil, of striving, and in particular, of training. He uses that word for training three times in these five verses. And the purpose of that training is singled out in verse 7. He says, train yourself for what? Train yourself for godliness. 
Meaning, if we're going to be of any use in this rescue mission, we must train ourselves in godliness. That's not just true for young Pastor Timothy. That is true for all of us. But here's a question. What is godliness? You know, for some of us who've grown up in the church, we throw around these words all the time. And I don't know if you've ever been in a context where someone asks you to define one of the words that you've used since you were two. And and you have that embarrassing moment of realizing, I don't know how to define this word. I use it all the time, and I don't have a clue. What is godliness? So in your mind, I want you to think right now of the godliest person that you know. What is it that makes them godly? What, is, what are we training ourselves for? What, what are we aiming at? The Greek word that Paul uses here carries with it a sense of devotion. Or you could picture it this way. It carries with it a sense of an awesome respect accorded to God. This is someone who, who gives an awesome respect to God. And if we're being honest, an awesome respect of God is not our natural default. Our natural default is to take God lightly. Right? You know this, if you're working out in the secular world, you know that is our natural default. Our natural default is to roll out of bed, to immediately think about our plans and our wants and our needs and our desires. But to be godly is to live a life that is appropriately affected by the gravity of God. To live a life that gives evidence to the fact that there is a God and He deserves demands your attention and your allegiance and your affection. To be godly is to live a life that is appropriately affected by the gravity of God. Is that your life, Christian? As we mentioned earlier, we know this from experience, godliness does not come naturally to us, therefore, Paul says, we need to train ourselves in it. That's what this passage is about. And it immediately presents us with a problem because training is hard. It is. It would be much easier to live my life with lesser ambitions. Ambitions that come more naturally to me. To live my life with the goal of, say, making lots of money so that I can eat, drink, and be as merry as possible until I die. Most of the people around us in the world are living for that ambition. Why then should I, as a Christian... Why then should you apply yourself to something that is so difficult, something that is so unnatural? We're going to look to this text and ask the first question, why should I train myself for godliness? First, you should train yourself for godliness so that you can be used to equip others. You should train yourself in godliness because your brothers and sisters in Christ need you. Look again at verse 6. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Timothy is to put these things before the brothers. These things likely referring here to the the doctrine contained in this letter, 1 Timothy. Paul says you are to take these things, you are to discern the doctrine, and then you are to teach what you have learned. Right? You are to consume, and then you are to share. You are to be discipled, and then you are to make disciples. That is the pattern for the Christian life. Right? Jesus calls us to go and make disciples. This is what it looks like. Receive and then share. Robert Murray McShane applies this principle to pastors. And he says, oh brethren, this is our great work. 
It's well to visit the sick and well to educate children and clothe the naked. It's well to attend presbyteries. It's well to write books or read them. But here is the main thing. It's the Word. Preach the Word. Put these things before the brothers and sisters, and then you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Equip the saints, he says in Ephesians 4. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the call to Timothy. That's the call to elders and pastors and under-shepherds. But it's also the call for you. It's the call for Christian friends and mentors. Have you ever thought about that? Your morning Bible study isn't just for you. You need to receive from the Lord. Why? So that you can overflow. You've got friends who are hurting, who are looking to you for counsel. What are you going to give them? Right? So you wake up each morning and you get yourself into the Word of God and you get these things into you so that you can share, so that you can bless, so that you can be a good servant of Jesus Christ. This is for parents. That's what we've been hammering home with the Life Together program. Leading a family devotion isn't rocket science, even though for some of us it feels like such a lofty Consume the Word. Take it and discern it and then share it. Read a paragraph from your Bible and then share it with the children. And press it into them. Be a good servant of Jesus Christ. John Calvin famously used this gross but helpful analogy um, Pastor Paul loves this, so you've probably heard this analogy, but he said to, to be a parent or a teacher is, is like a mother bird who's got little chicks to feed, and the mother bird finds a big worm, but the little chicks can't eat the big worm. It's too big. So what does she do? The, she, she chews up this worm, and then she spits the little bits and pieces into the little chicks' mouths. He says, that's your job, pastors and mentors and parents. Take it and and get it into you and chew it up and then distribute what you've received to the others. But if you're not being trained, as Paul says here, if you're neglecting the input, you won't have anything to share with others. You can't teach something that you haven't received. You can't lead someone to a place that you've never been. Therefore, you need to train yourself for godliness. Why? So that you can equip others. Second, you should train yourself for godliness so that you can enjoy the blessings of obedience. Look again at verses 7 to 9. It says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Why? For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul here uses this athletic imagery to pull us in. He reminds young Timothy that bodily training is of some value. There's value in it. That's why we do it. I'm looking around this room. I know that there are many of you who care about fitness and you pursue this, but it's hard work. Why do you wake up early and, and, and lift those heavy weights and run on that treadmill? Why do you watch your diet? Well, you do it because there's present value. You want to be healthy. You want to live longer. You want to meet your grandchildren, be able to play with them. You want to be strong. Physical training is hard, but we do it because we see the present value in it. And that's great, Paul says. That's that's true. So see that. Keep that up. There's value in physical training. But, Timothy, Paul says, but, Redeemer, training in godliness offers so much more value. First of all, Training in godliness offers value in this life. 
Now, we don't always talk about this because we're afraid of, of kind of veering into the prosperity gospel. And so, listen, I'm not veering into the prosperity gospel, but I can tell you, as a matter of fact, training in godliness offers value for your life today. Following God's instructions does generally, now hear that word, does generally lead to a better life. Now, when we live God's way, we generally enjoy better friendships, richer friendships, richer marriages, a better life. That's why the book of Proverbs exists, because God's wisdom is good, and it's good for our life today. His plan for our finances is better. His plan for our family life is better. His plan for our work habits is better. Godliness is better, and it benefits our lives today. That's the truth. And we need to see that. By the way, we need to recapture that, because as Paul says here, there are a lot of people, even in this room, who who really value fitness, who would spend an hour of your day each day exercising because you see the present value in it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that there is present value today to devote an hour to godliness. There's present value today for your family, for for your work, even for your finances, to look to God, to discern how He would have you live your life. There is value today, and you should pursue it. Jesus told us that there's value in godliness. In Mark chapter 10, He said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold when? Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. With persecutions, he qualifies. And in the age to come, eternal life. See, the, the Christian hope is rooted in the future, absolutely. And our kingdom is not of this world. We should never lose sight of that. But, and this is the piece we need to recapture, But there is also blessing in the present. Now to be clear, our present blessing includes persecutions, right? Trials and tribulations. Jesus says that here. It's all over the New Testament. Yes. But it's still good. And as we train ourselves in godliness, even though we pay a great cost as we part with our former way of life, what we gain is 100 times better. There's benefit for us now. But all that being said, The blessings we experience now pale in comparison to the eternal reward. And this is really what distinguishes training in godliness from physical training. See, the hours you spent at the gym were good in that they made you stronger, absolutely. But when you get to heaven, no one's going to care what you could deadlift. Maybe Matt Kohler. Outside of Matt Kohler, nobody's going to care what you could deadlift. In heaven, the greatest rewards are reserved for those who busied themselves with the Master's work. Jesus taught us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now that begs the question, what treasure is Jesus referring to? What's he referring to here? And... and, Good godly Christians, good Bible scholars suggest that he's referring here to a, you know, rewards in heaven, like a different degree of rewards in heaven. Sure, that is possible. Sure. But I believe that the treasure that Jesus is referring to here is the treasure of the people that we will lead to Christ and disciple in this life. The eternal souls that we will see in heaven. 
Think about it for a moment. I wonder if you've ever led anyone to Christ. If you have, you know that there is nothing like it. Truly, there's nothing else in the world like it. When, when you're able to share with someone the hope of the gospel and their eyes open wide for the first time, and they realize that, yes, I am dead in my sin, and yet, wow, there is a God who loves me, who sent His Son to die on the cross to pay for my sin. And if I repent and put my trust in Jesus, then all of my guilt and all my shame that should separate me from God is taken from me and put on Christ, and He bears it for me. And I have resurrection life, and I'm going to be with Him forever, and He loves me in spite of all that I've done. And their eyes begin to open, and you walk through the Scriptures. There's nothing like it. But I imagine that that joy of, of leading a brother or sister to Christ pales in comparison to the joy that we will feel, feel when we're in glory. And we look next to us and we see that brother. And he looks at us and his eyes are so much wider. Could you, and he said, can you believe it? Here we are. Here we are. This is what it was all about. That's the treasure in heaven I believe that Jesus is alluding to. And, and nothing can take that treasure away Brothers and sisters, I want to just ask you this morning, do you presently have any treasure in heaven? Jesus talks about some who will, who will make their way to heaven, but it will be like a, a naked person who just escaped from the fire. You know, it's, this is a person who's lived their entire life devoting themselves to temporary worldly things, accumulating all their wealth and their finances, and then, you know, somehow, some way, in the final moment, they repent, they believe, they put their trust in Christ, and they're in. But, they're in, but they didn't bring anything with them. You know, they're not going to have that experience of looking over and seeing that brother, seeing that sister that they led to the Lord. Because they gave their life to other things. To accumulating treasures in different places. Treasures that are gone forever. Treasures that nobody cares about anymore at all. And Jesus says, when you get to heaven, it's, it's, it's entirely different. Focus yourself on those treasures. Devote yourself, devote your life to something that will last forever. That leads us to consider Paul's next argument. You should train yourself for godliness so that you can be effective in God's rescue mission. See, one of Paul's primary concerns in this letter has been to expose the false teachers in Ephesus who had been ruined of the church in the city. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But the church had become so worldly and so distracted by silly myths and speculation that they were turning people away rather than inviting them in. They were reading through the genealogies in the Bible and and trying to figure out who the true people of God were. And they were making it into this elitist institution. And they were turning people away from the gospel. Can you imagine living a life that is so hypocritical, so off the mark, that people are rejecting the faith because of their brief exposure to you. That's what Paul's writing to address here. And in in verse 10 he says, for to this end we toil and strive. So he says, Timothy, train yourself in godliness because to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, the wording of verse 10 has caused some confusion over the centuries. If you read that at face value, you might come away thinking that Paul is teaching the heresy that we know as universalism. You might come away thinking that Paul is saying that everybody's going to go to heaven no matter what, because God is the Savior of all people. 
But he's not saying that because that goes against the clear testimony of Scripture. And it also goes against the clear testimony of, of all that Paul has written in all of his epistles. So that's not what he's saying. But it begs the question, what is he saying here? The best explanation I've found, the one that best matches Paul's argument throughout the letter, is that he's using this language of, of God being the Savior of all people to rebuke this particular problem in Ephesus. The Ephesian heresy had led the church to have an introverted, elitist focus. A focus that kept them from sharing the gospel with the lost. A focus that took them off of mission. And this letter consistently reminds Timothy that the message of the gospel is to be declared indiscriminately to the entire world, to all people. Because God is not just the Savior of the Ephesian church. He's the Savior of all people, especially or particularly those who believe. This is the end to which Paul is toiling and striving. That people of all nations would be brought under the sound of the gospel and brought into the kingdom of heaven. Paul's hope is on the living God, the Savior of the world. Paul toils and strives and trains himself in godliness because he knows that God's salvation will stretch to every people, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And Timothy and the church need to train themselves in godliness so that they can get themselves back on track to engage with this rescue mission. Paul says this is what it's about. Our God is the Savior of all people. Therefore, not only should you train for godliness so that you can equip your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to do that because they need equipping and they need encouraging. And not only should you train yourself in godliness so that you can enjoy the blessings of obedience, but you should also train yourself in godliness so that you can be effective in God's rescue mission. This mission that He made you to partake in. Now with the time we have left, I want to ask one last question. So we've talked about the why. You know, why does this matter? Why should I give my life to this? Because your brothers and sisters are counting on you? Because this is people going to hell all around you. That's why. Those are good reasons, right? Lean in. But then it begs the question, well then how? How do I train myself in godliness? And Paul has a word for us here as well. This won't be an exhaustive list, but here in this passage he puts forward two lessons for young Timothy and for us to start his training in godliness. We find the first lesson in verse 6. He says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in what? In the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So the first lesson we learn here, Paul teaches us that we train ourselves in godliness by listening to the right instructor. As we've already seen a number of times in this letter, if you want to be useful for the work of ministry, then you need to be selective with your input. You need to be trained, particularly, Paul says, in the words of the faith and in the good doctrine. That is to say, you need to study God's Word and you need to listen to those who rightly handle God's truth. Put good things in, he says. We mentioned this last week, I'll say it again. Brothers and sisters, we need to be Bible readers in this place. We have to. It's a non-negotiable. And, and we've got to let go of all the excuses that we throw up. And I know that, that they're there. That some of us are not good readers. And that's okay. But praise God, we live in a culture with audio Bibles. You can listen to Liam Neeson read the Bible, I'm sure. Like they, there, there are no good excuses that can keep us out of the Word of God in this context. We've got to get it into us. 
Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for parenting. Moms and dads, I want you to think, I want you to really think, what is the well that you are consistently drawing from? The Bible says that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when your kids are going to come to you in in context where they need wisdom, they're coming to you, they're looking to you, mom, they're looking to you, dad, for wisdom. What is the well that you consistently draw from? What is the wisdom that's going to flow out of your mouth? From the overflow of your heart, what's going to come? Get good things into you, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for friendship. Mental health is rampant in our culture. I can't remember a time when it's been so widespread. Uh, The last two years have, have taken a toll on all of us. Many of your friends are hurting more than they ever have in their lifetime. So what's flowing out of your heart? What's the well that you're drawing from to care for these people in your life that you love, that you're trying to walk beside? Do you have anything for them? Do you have God's truth stored up inside of you? Are you pulling from, from the riches of His treasures? All scriptures breathed out by God. It's profitable for evangelism. Your coworkers have questions. Your neighbors have doubts. Your in-laws have objections. The man on the street has sorrows. And the answers for all of these are found in the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, get it into you. Train yourself in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Get it into you. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So get all Scripture into you. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Slow down. Chew on it. Think about it. Put, put an extra five minutes in your time in the morning. And, and don't just read it, but just stop and think. God, what do I need to see here? How does this apply? Think about your coworkers or your family or your spouse. Think, Lord, how can this be of benefit to them? How can I minister with what I've received? If we want to train ourselves in godliness, we need to get right. We need to go right to the source, and we need to listen to the right instructor. That's the first lesson we learn in this passage. It leads naturally to Paul's second lesson, which is really the flip side of the coin. We see it in verse 7, where Paul says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So here we learn that we grow in godliness by shunning. Every generation has its own iteration of silliness. And so we've talked a bit about what was going on in Ephesus. Paul addressed that Ephesian heresy first in chapter 1. And as we said, it's hard to put all the pieces together, but it seems that these teachers in Ephesus were, were teaching that you could go back to the genealogies in God's Word, and you could draw from those genealogies weird and dangerous false conclusions. They were speculating about who the true people of God were, and this was leading to this heretical idea that the gospel was only for a select group of people. And it was leading to legalism and elitism and gross things that were ruining the witness of the church, which is why so much of the letter is devoted to the truth that the gospel is for all people. We've said this. Hopefully that stuff is just resonating in your heart, resting in your mind. This novelty in Ephesus, this nonsense had effectively distracted the church in Ephesus from their mission. They should have been going into the world and making disciples, 
and instead they were going into their basement and reading Genesis with a decoder ring. And it's nonsense. And every generation has its own iteration of nonsense. So we need to learn the lesson. If we listen to the wrong voices for long enough, we'll be taken off of the mission field. If you put junk in, junk will come out. Think about that. When you're binge-watching those ridiculous clips on YouTube, you're not just hurting yourself, but you're rendering yourself useless and, in fact, dangerous for all of the people who are going to be looking to you for help. The junk that goes in is going to come out. So by way of example, we've talked about physical fitness. He uses that analogy here. We've got the Olympics going on. Every athlete knows you need to fuel yourself with good things if you're going to have a good output. And so they're eating chicken breasts, I'm sure, and kale, and they're getting all that stuff into them so that they can be nourished and ready. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, I can't verify this, but I'm 99% sure that Simone Biles, when she was breaking world records, was not eating ice cream and chips in her training days, right? Because she, she had a goal, she had a driving ambition to be the best gymnast in the world. And she wasn't going to put anything into her that would hinder her from her driving ambition. So I would ask you, what is your driving ambition? I would argue that we don't ask that question enough. And it's a question worth asking. What is your life all about? You roll out of bed and you make thousands of decisions each and every day with what you're going to do with your time, with where you're going to invest your energy, come back to this one question. What is your driving ambition, Christian? Is it maximum pleasure and comfort? Do you roll out of bed and make decisions each and every day to try and create for yourself the most comfortable existence in this short life? Are you making decisions that will get you through the things you need to get through quickly enough so that you can plop yourself back down on the couch and numb yourself to the cares of the world, binge-watching TV. Is that what your day is all about? Is your driving ambition to accumulate enough money that you can retire and just have a real cozy finish-line trip? Right? You can get yourself away, you can avoid all the busyness of the world, and you can spend the last 20 years of your life just living selfishly for yourself. Is that your driving ambition? What is it about? Or is your driving ambition to take this short life that you've been entrusted with and to maximize it for the glory of God? Is it your driving ambition to pull as many men and women and boys and girls out of the fire as you can with this limited time that you have, to show as many people as you can the glorious good news of the Gospel, to share what you've received, to live a life that is salt, that is light, to train yourself in godliness to be used by the Lord for the assignment that He's entrusted to you? Is that your ambition? God's Word says that it ought to be. And yet, isn't it true that for so many of us, on so many days, myself included, there are days when we roll out of bed and we aim for the wrong target entirely. And some of us have spent years of our life aiming for the wrong target entirely. And tragically, many will spend an entire life aiming for the wrong target. And you might hit it, but it'd be a wasted life. And this brings us back full circle to the illustration we started with this morning. 300,000 Allied soldiers trapped on the beach of Dunkirk. Life and death hanging in the balance. It's not a stretch to suggest that Hitler would have won the war 
were it not for the successful rescue accomplished by the ordinary citizens of Great Britain. That history-altering rescue was made possible by ordinary men and women who understood that something needed to be done and who were willing to answer the call. Brothers and sisters, before we leave this morning, I want to make sure that you hear loud and clear your call. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Doesn't that sound a lot like what he said to Timothy? Paul says, if you would be a good servant of Jesus Christ, teach these things to the brothers. Jesus says, go, you, my disciples, Make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. What you've received, give. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you know what that is? That's a call for Operation Dynamo. That is Jesus, the one who purchased your life with his blood, using his final words to tell you what you ought to be aiming your life at. It's a call to action call to mobilize for this global rescue mission. 300,000 soldiers trapped on the beach, a mere 20 miles from safety. What a tragic story that would have been if the call went out and, and men and women who were capable, men and women who had the resources, men and women who could have rescued, who could have saved, who could have answered the call, sat on their couches and said, you know what, I really want to listen to this radio program and somebody else is better equipped, what is my measly fishing vessel going to do? They would have changed the world. Brothers and sisters, within a 20-mile radius of this church, it's close to, close to 300,000 lost men and women, boys and girls. Lost without hope in this world, Ephesians 1 says. Some of them never heard the gospel. Some of them never, never been helped to understand who Jesus is, what he's done. Many of them sinking under the weight of sin. Many of them mindless to the fact that they're in any danger at all. 300,000 men and women and boys and girls. And Jesus has given us a call. What will we do? If something doesn't change, they will die. Thousands of them, tens of thousands of them live in this city. Hundreds of them live on your street. Some of them probably live in your house. Don't wait on the sidelines any longer. Don't allow yourself to waste this life that you've been given. Sitting on the couch trying to avoid any discomfort. That's not what you were made for. Give your life to something worth pursuing. Paul says, train yourself in godliness for the glory of God, for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ, for the salvation of the world. Train yourself for godliness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that... uh, Lord, we acknowledge that every one of us in this room falls short of what you deserve. Lord, so we just put that on the table. 
Uh, Every one of us has, and every one of us will in the future, put our own selfish ambitions in the driver's seat. Uh, Lord, we've done it, and uh, we'll, we'll relapse into sin, I would imagine. Lord, we just ask for the help of your Spirit to understand the urgency. God, I I believe that one of the ways that the enemy is so effective in his assault on on our community is that he's just effective in lulling us to sleep. Uh, And he's so effective at turning all of our focus and all of our attention on all of the wrong things. Lord, guard my tongue. Let this not be heard the wrong way. But Lord, I'm just freshly reminded that it was, it was easy to mobilize the church to make the drive to Ottawa to protest. And it's so hard to motivate the church to cross the street to tell our neighbors about Jesus. And that grieves my heart, Lord. And I see it in myself. Lord, we need to see the world the way that you see it. And we may not have consumed the Ephesian heresy. But Lord, we are often guilty of having hearts that are hard for the people around us in our city. Hearts that are callous to the fact that there are people going to hell all around us. Hearts that are indifferent. Hearts that are more concerned with what's happening in here, with our, with our little elitist group, and that can be completely indifferent to the, the hardships all around us. Lord, I pray against that in Jesus' name. That that. For this we toil, that for this we strive, that we, our hope is in the living God, the Savior of the world. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and He saved us sinners, and He's given us an assignment. Lord, help us to lay hold of that, God, I pray. Not to try and earn Your love. Lord, I don't want to guilt Anyone in this room, Lord, that's not what you're trying to do. You're not guilting us into this mission. You're just reminding us that we've received this incredible gift and we were made to share it. Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, in order to do that, it's going to require effort. Lord, I pray that you'd press that upon our hearts today. That there's effort involved. That we need to be diligent students of the word. We need to... We need to let go of all the excuses. We need to get the truth into us. We need to equip ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves for the objections that we face. We need to prepare ourselves to be able to explain the gospel. Lord, we we need to train ourselves in godliness. We need to things that hinder our witness. All of the things that keep our neighbors from even wanting to hear us because they see the hypocrisy. Lord, in all of this, it's going to take effort. It's going to take training. And Lord, we're capable of working hard. We're capable of, of working hard physically. Strong bodies. Lord, I, I know we're capable of effort. Lord, so I pray that you would just direct us to this effort that eternally matters. Lord, and only you can do it. So Lord, would you help? Uh, God, would you move? And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?